Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Tina Horn, and you're listening to episode 11, side B of... Why are people into that? My guest for episode 11 is Sarah Patterson, the executive director of the Persist Health Project. Persist is an organization that connects people in the sex trades with non judgmental health care and social services, and they are fucking rad. And if you're in the New York City area and you do now or have ever worked in the sex industry, I urge you to head on over to PersistHealthProject.org and get some more information. In part one, Sarah and I talked about why people are interested in being clients to various different kinds of sex workers. In this week, we delve into a more nuanced subject, why do people do sex work? Now, I want to make it abundantly clear that nobody, but nobody, is less interested than Sarah and myself in perpetuating the idea that the only reason people would do sex work is because they are quote-unquote into it, as the very title of my podcast suggests. Really, this episode is less about human desire for once and more about exploring the motivations for capitalizing on human sexual desire. Appropriately, I have a new piece on Vice.com reporting on whorephobia in major financial institutions, from Chase Bank closing down the accounts of porn stars to PayPal and WePay freezing the money that several out sex workers were raising for something other than sex work. It's called How the Financial Sector is Making Life Miserable for Sex Workers, and I originally wanted to call it How Can We Make It Rain, and I also wanted to just read you a little paragraph that my editor cut from the article to muse on um, before you listen to this episode. Although we have other aspects of our lives, like other jobs, hobbies, volunteer work, families, and communities, we are considered first and foremost to be whores. Even after we leave the industry, we have a scarlet W on our chests. We aren't being punished for being criminals. We are punished for using the power of our sexuality in public to support ourselves. Alright, enough from my detached, abstract, sultry voice. Let's listen in to the thrilling conclusion of Sarah and me trying to figure out why are people into sex work? I mean, I have a, a theory that 
Like for instance, we'll take, I'll just give you one example. There's some literature out there that suggests that much like queer folks, sex workers are more likely to smoke than other people. That's interesting. Um, now, smoking is directly related to anxiety management for a lot of people. Like, it's a coping mechanism. Right. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of queer people smoke is because they're coping with fucking oppression all the time, right? So, and it's like a way of like calming yourself down, like having something to do. Like having something fidgeting. that you can control, ritualistic and dependable. Yeah. Right. And then, like, it's also a community thing because, like, you know, you're hanging out with other queers, they're smoking, you're, like, it's a way of connecting to other people, and it's also a way of distancing yourself from people you don't want to be around. You need to leave a situation, you go outside and smoke. These are, like, ways in which people use smoking as a coping strategy. Um, so there's some evidence that sex workers are also more likely to smoke than the average person. Um, and man, well, what else are you going to do when you're sitting around waiting for the phone to ring? You know? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's also that, right? It's like, it's, it's a time, it's a way to kill time. It's also like, you know, a way to distance yourself from your work. Like you, you get out of, you get out of work. You want to, you want to relax. You want to chill. You smoke a cigarette, you have a cocktail, whatever. So I just, I have a, I have a theory, I am, I am not a psychologist, um, but I do have a theory that, that there are probably a lot of occupational, well, I, I hesitate to use the word occupational because like I said, I don't think it's to re to directly related to the job. I think it's related to the stigma and the, the anxiety, um, that people probably have long-term anxiety issues as a result of constantly dealing with, of, Stigma management. That mm. stigma management relates to how people that people get because I think that you're like sort of particularly if you're like if you're working at a place that has a bunch of video monitors and there's like baby monitors in the room, people are listening to you, mm. you have to like walk a client out, you have to make sure you do the secret handshake on the like mm -hmm. way out, and like there's all these like cloak of secrecy things that have to happen, like your heart rate is probably slightly above what it's supposed to be work all day at work. So, and if you're working, if you're working a shift, that could be like six to eight hours. You could, you could literally be spending eight hours out of your day with like a low grade anxiety all the time. Well, right. I mean, and the other, the other side of that coin is, uh, that I think is, uh, seductive and attractive for people is that that can also manifest as an adrenaline rush, right? And it can oh, yeah. also manifest as, um, uh, as j just a, a feeling of a, a clandestine feeling of doing something underground and, uh, dangerous and interesting, um, uh, and iconoclastic. And then also, um, even the sort of the, the rush that you get as a performer or as an artist as well, um, of, of going through all of those, those little rituals. But yeah, it, it, it also, it's, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, um, to mix metaphors because, um, it, the, on one hand, like adrenaline rush is great. On the other hand, um, uh, that also can, depending on the circumstance, can also end up looking like anxiety or can start out one way and end up being another way or be one on one day and another on another day. Um, and maybe something that starts out as feeling like an adrenaline rush all the time eventually becomes 
more having to do with anxiety and then you have to have a coping mechanism like smoking or other addictions. And I guess going back to what we were initially saying, I would argue that the circumstances that produce that anxiety have to do with social stigma and and the consciousness and circumstances that that um that that stigma forces sex workers into rather than the actual literal in a vacuum exchange like like trade of sex for money and that's so much to manage at one time and you're totally right i mean there could be a lot of good stuff in that bag too like just the the idea that you know you're managing what am i wearing what does this client want what am i doing today what house management today what's the situation where i'm working like and then all of the privacy stuff and all of that going together and also just like the performance of the actual yeah. sex work itself yeah. is so many things happening at one time. And it totally, I mean, I think for folks, it can definitely manifest as adrenaline. And then, like you said, the flip side of the coin and anxiety, like, which actually, and when I think about sex worker activists and like sex worker activists who have stopped working or are only working sporadically or um, things like that, it's interesting because I think that 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 like sort of need to like have that anxiety pumping or adrenaline pumping like comes through in the activism like I mm. in terms of like in terms of burnout like I see people push themselves really 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 hard for free since 99.99% of sex worker activism is done for free um, I see folks work really hard and that's they sort of transfer that like level mm. of intensity over to something else as well. I mean, so maybe, of course, we haven't gotten into this, but, and this is always, is so hard to say because the type of people who trade sex are so, so, so diverse and it's so difficult to generalize any of it. Um, but whether it does attract folks who, either who like the personality development aspects of it, I mean, I feel like mm. I've definitely known sex workers who were like, I'm an outsider, like, I want to do outsider things, like, this fits my personality, I want to develop more around feeling like an outsider. Word. Um, and then, but then also just folks who, who just get into it for, for many other different reasons, so that's not necessarily the reason why, why folks do it, but, um, but I do think that there is, you, you get tripped, you get tripped up in it, because, folks may go into it for that that adrenaline that feeling of adrenaline of like being a performer and like succeeding at something making something happen um in a sex work environment but then i i see people i, I think that the the stigma is, is such a trap because it's like yeah. it, it it gets internalized in ways that i think people don't always expect is going to happen and it, and it kind of like comes up in weird it manifests itself in weird behaviors where I think folks don't even realize that it's like it's internalized itself in that way. It's so insidious. Yeah. The the anxiety is really insidious in terms of how it affects um, people's own internalized shame or their own feelings about their life, and it's sometimes difficult for us to see it right away as as what it actually is. Well, you know, you hit on something that's really interesting because, uh, yes, there are uh, 
obviously as many different motivations for wanting to be a sex worker as there are motivations um, to uh, want to be a firefighter or an astronaut or a teacher or whatever. Um, but um, I, I think that every, I think it's probably fair to say that every sex worker has their own experience of a personality uh, shift or uh, I don't want to say split because um, you know that um, is its own personality splits of their own thing um, but uh, and I don't want to necessarily suggest that it has anything to do with mental health but um, uh, there there is you do have to be somebody else at work in a very literal way. Most sex workers use an assumed name. Most sex workers behave in ways that, that are not necessarily reflective of them and perhaps even purport to have opinions that they don't actually have. They, they play a role. Mm -hmm. And some people, I think, relish the opportunity to develop that role for whatever reason, uh, for artistic reasons, for coping mechanism reasons, for security reasons, for psychological compartmentalization reasons, um, but uh, um, but the 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 truth of that actually is that in sex work it's just more literal than how it is for everybody else. I mean, I think that I would ask like everyone listening to this program to stop and think about a job that they've had where they have felt like they had to be somebody that they're not. I mean, you know, first of all, you could be in a bad mood and you have to be in a good mood at most jobs. Um, especially ones that involve interacting with mm -hmm. clients. You know, you're feeling yeah. low energy, you got to figure out how to be high energy. Um, you are, uh, you know, you find someone, um, disagreeable in some way you gotta figure out how to make it seem like you find them like the hottest shit ever um you only have to read yelp reviews of restaurants to figure that one out right you know the server being nice or the ser the server seeming interested in whatever you're talking about is an essential component of most for most people going out Right. Having been a bartender for five years, it is not an essential component for me going out <laughs> because I totally get it. But uh, but I do. But I, you know, when you go out to dinner with someone and they're like, "Oh, the server is so," it's like so nice. indulgent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, she was so great that she did that, or so great that he did that for us. Right. I mean, it's part of what you're paying for instead of fucking staying at home and making yourself dinner. Right. Right. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I, I you know, no. I um. I like the idea of, um, you know, sometimes when I get off work at my retail job in Soho, it's really jarring for a second to like go out to dinner or like go do some shopping like in the area because all of a sudden I'm like, it, 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 like the tables are turned and like somebody's like, do you need anything? And I'm like, oh gosh, I do. I have questions. <laughs> you know? like, all yeah. of a sudden I'm not the one with the answer. I'm the one with the question. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, I mean, I think that the, the point of this conversation as it could be the point of many conversations is that um, sex work is just like other work, just 
with sex. And sex is a big deal for people. <laughs> and um, makes things very charged. And people bring a lot of baggage and a lot of preconceived notions to things. And it just also, you know, ironically, sometimes sex makes people behave very in a very juvenile manner, even though technically it's something for grown-ups to do and engage in and talk about and entertain one another in. Um, and there's something to be said for the fact that so many folks who are in the sex trade are... Women or gay men, right? Who are already sort of are already feminized into social service professions and service professions as service providers. It's a really fucking good point. Yeah, and it, and so I guess you know <laughs> when you even when you think about folks who are are very anti-sex work, you think about you know. Um, the ways in which girls are socialized and uh, the way that they're told to perform their gender is very much in line with service provision. And taught to be accommodating and to know how to uh, pamper and indulge people. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a part of our programming as as, um, female assigned at birth folks. Yeah, don't, don't, don't set boundaries. Don't be a bitch. Don't, 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 have, don't have a hard line, you no. know? Yeah. I want to also uh, conclude by making sure that we have sort of touched, at least touched on some of the important points also of the other side of this, which is why are, why are people into that? Why are people into being sex workers? You know, I mean, the, the main difference, and I want to clarify being that, you know, by into being sex workers, I don't necessarily mean like why, like why do people choose to be sex workers because they find it like sexually arousing uh, or they're like motivated by their like mm. sexual desire is a very different motivation from a client who is motivated by and large by um, uh, their uh, desire. Right. Um, uh, you know, but why, like, why are some people into being sex workers? I mean, you know, uh, it's important to acknowledge that some, that there are people who are coerced into sex work, and, um, that is a, um, really, really, really big issue, um, and, um, there are also people who feel, um, that they don't have much of a choice because of their uh, social situation. Um, uh, and then there are also people who choose to do it for other reasons. Um, and um, I guess I want to talk about um, what some of those reasons are. I mean, for folks who trade sex for all kinds of different stuff that might not be um, that might not be money, mm-hmm. things for housing, of course, or drugs, or food, or other resources. Um, I mean, I, I think it goes, honestly, it goes back to how prevalent you pointed out massage might be in Midtown, in New York City, in the middle of the day. It's that the sex trade is in, can be accessed in many different ways, at many different points, and it can look very different. Yeah. Um, and but folks know that this is a I mean the thing about 
about the sex trade is that you you can step in and out of it if you if you are if you are doing it by some semblance of choice. I think that there's a really difficult distinction between what a lot of folks in LGBT organizations refer to as survival sex and right. uh, sex work because you know one could argue that we're all like everybody who trades sex is trading sex to survive so you know like what is what, what the hell does survival mean we're all surviving in one sense or another right I mean I think that the um, just to clarify I mean I think that the the purpose of that distinction is is that there are some people who um, if they if they choose to stop doing sex work at any time, they have the social mobility to get a different uh, source of income. Right. They have the uh, uh, relationship with their uh, family of origin or chosen family or community um, to get uh, you know their basic needs met of food and shelter. Um, should they choose to leave the sex industry or stop doing sex work at any time. Um, right. and, and so for people who have the, the privilege of, who have those, those privileges, they're like trying to make a distinction between that and, um, people who don't have those privileges for whatever reason. Absolutely. I, my only bone, bone to pick with that. And it actually took me like almost now, now almost a decade of, uh, being involved in sex worker activism in some capacity to see this, which is that um, sex work gets treated as though it's a positive term, and I don't necessarily think that work, like just because we're defining something as labor, as like a as something as something to get something else, to me doesn't have a positive connotation. Although I totally understand that folks do see it that way that's sort of flip sides of the coin right like sex sex the sex work is work model is somehow seen as like a pro sex work model when i don't necessarily mm. think that like just defining it as labor doesn't like not all labor is awesome right or consensual well, it's about, well but it's about um it's about agency and um self-determination right um it is so fucked up too like all like like living in a fucking capitalist society as you do and I do like everything all the time everywhere is like work 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 like you're defined by your work you need to work like you are uh only can only be patriotic if you work you can only be like you can only actually like have Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're love sanctioned by the state if you work. Like, your fucking parents want you to work. Who are you? What do you do for work? Like, and then you're like, okay, cool. Like, uh, look, this opportunity to do something that I'm good at. Like, I I'm gonna, I'm gonna work. And then fucking the same society is like, what the fuck are you doing? You're such a horrible, horrible <laughs> whore. You don't deserve love. You don't deserve 
to do something else or work with children now. Like you don't deserve, yeah. you don't deserve fucking anything. Like what the fuck? And I think <laughs> you see it. I mean, I will get. I want to go back to your point, but we, uh, that you were making before talking about survival sex. But um, you see this in sex worker activism stuff too. I see people work themselves to the bone for free for which I mean I know I keep emphasizing free it's the capitalist in me who just keeps needing to point that out um but I see people working extremely extremely hard and sacrificing self-care sacrificing their own mental health in the pursuit of sex worker rights and it is I do think that I mean I am I am super super guilty of this too so I'm saying it just as much for myself as for anyone else um that when we think about healing and taking care of ourselves and recognizing that there's so much historical trauma around stepping into this work um that it that it also that that's also how it plays out for folks because just because folks stop working or exit the industry as it were um doesn't mean that that like that when you're talking about that like work 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 it just gets transferred onto something else it's just you know absolutely or you know folks like i mean this is sort of the model of persist right is that folks move into social services or they move into healthcare, right and they are in another service model providing services um just like a sex worker does and they're still busting their ass and yeah. so I, I think it is it's very it's very difficult I think that the sex worker rights movement has a really hard time with with community care and with self-care because mm. trauma is really real and I'm sure there are other intersecting factors for why that happens um, but to get back to what you were talking about in terms of agency and choosing the work I mean I also think of like it's also just a situation where I think a lot about this in terms of housing, too, mm. because New York City, every week, it's like another thing with the housing. It's like now there was an article recently out about how they're moving, um, they're moving uh, older adults from their house their house that they've had uh, rent controlled for the last 40 years or whatever they're trying to shift these folks into smaller what they're calling economy apartments or like uh, what do they call them um, I think it might be economy apartments but whatever so they're trying to take Pre- because, proto-coffins <laughs> exactly so they like because they want the housing. They want the housing that these folks are living in. They're trying to move. Sure, you can it, you right? can charge like you know five artisanal something makers like you know twelve hundred dollars each to like live in in a place that is currently like being you know that has like been the home of like one person for forty years. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So like. And pretty much you get like in New York you get like a weekly reminder that housing is hard yes. to get and when I think about my friends and I think about there was all the, I keep mentioning articles but there was also this wonderful piece in the New York Times like maybe two years ago now about how people in New York are more likely to move in with each other more quickly uh-huh. because of housing than, than in many other cities um, also perhaps one of the reasons that 
a year feels like three years. Exactly. <laughs> we're we're all sped up. We <laughs> we move it at as quick as fast as speed as possible in New York City. That's why they call it a New York minute. There you go. New and in New York minute, you could be living in your booze house, and only a year has gone by, but it feels like ten. So anyway. Um, and that's when you need a hand job. And that's when and all the hand jobs scrub down <laughs> anyway. But so I think about that. I think about the circumstances that people stay in in order. Like when I think about survival, I think about like the housing that folks stay in right. with an abusive partner because they need to live there. Right. Because they need to live somewhere. I think about like different relational structures that we deal with in a capitalist society where folks are under constrained options because of lack of employment options, because of trans identity, because of racism, you know, and all these different things that intersect to make it more difficult for folks to survive. Um, you know, what folks refer to as institutional oppression. Um, and so that stuff, I think, is very necessary to mention when we do talk about that stuff because that all that's we write all this stuff onto that onto that person's body in terms of like oh they're just trying they're just trying to survive they don't really want this they're they're coerced and then we don't look at the necessarily at the coercive structures that are happening around that and the the history of why that's happening and so it's a tricky conversation to have because I feel like Americans in particular are very, very interested in, um, like we're such a we're a culture that's so obsessed with suing people, right? It's like oh my god, it's like somebody is at fault. It has to be a specific person. We have to find that specific person, and once that specific person is rooted out, the problem is solved. And sort of the like, other thing that solves the problem is having money. So you've gone through something traumatic. You've like you know literally lost a loved one. You've literally lost a limb. You've literally lost your house. But as long as you have, now you have a million dollars. So. So everything's fine. Right. So it's sort of like we have to, right, we have to figure out who the culprit is because the culprit can't possibly be like the system. And so that's kind of, I mean, a person much smarter than me who works with uh, youth who have been trafficked uh, talks about, you know, she always says like, well, we talk about traffickers but we don't talk about the system as the trafficker as right. as the person like this the entire system is the thing that's doing it not necessarily just this one individual or this one circumstance right obviously you know it's it's easy enough to demonize somebody who traffics people and you know those people uh like should be are, are culpable and, and need to be held accountable, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, but, but it's true, the circumstances that lead um, people to exploit others are the same circumstances that lead people to um, be exploited. And it's just, I mean, if there's anything to get out of the conversation that we've just had about this, the motivations are complicated and the reasons why people are in circumstances are complicated and that has to do with the intersection of what a client or a john brings into a circumstance and what 
the sex worker or the person who's training sex brings into that circumstance and then like the society at large and how it plays a role in that whole interaction there's just like a lot of different things happening yeah well I, I mean I think that some sometimes you know something that doesn't get talked about a lot in sex worker activism I think is the fact that sometimes for and for and for some people a lot of the times sex work can be really fun like, it yeah, can be totally. really fucking fun. Yeah. Like, the outfits are fucking fabulous. The hours are fabulous. The cash in hand and the opportunity to not to declare that cash, whether or not you choose to, um, uh, can be really fucking fabulous. Um, and, you know, the potential for camaraderie, the potential to, the potential for women to work with other women, um, which is not something that happens outside of the sex, sex industry as often as it happens in the sex industry. In one of the highest paying professions for women in the United States. Right. And the oldest, I hear. <laughs> older <laughs> than the... Rumor. It is older than the United States, I'm told. <laughs> um, so they uh, say. You know, I think, I think some people find it an opportunity for a lot of soul searching a lot of uh you know uh body searching and by by that i mean you know the opportunity to uh put your body in really extreme situations in circumstances that for many sex workers are often actually very structured and uh emotionally and physically safe you know in the same way that an athlete or even you know a dancer or a performance artist or actor will put themselves in extreme situations for the very opportunity to test their body to test their psychological endurance to test their metal and their ability to um uh to develop their craft and 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 uh um and push themselves with something that they may consider to be, I think many sex workers that I have talked to consider sex work to be a craft. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's also like totally fucking cool and underground and outsider thing to do. Like, that's real. Yeah, like, that's a reason, that's a reason to do it. It's part of certain kinds of styles. It's part of certain kinds of cultures. Um, it can feel really good to have somebody, to have, have, you know, people day in, day out call you a goddess and to tell you that you're beautiful, to bring you money specifically because you are beautiful. Um, and, um, you know, that's, I'm, I'm not trying to in any way over idealize sex work, but, no. uh, you know, but, uh, because there are shadow sides to each and every one of these examples, um, but um, I think that those are also some of the motivations that um, that I have heard from so people for doing that work. I think sometimes also people are like, I'm sexually liberated or sexually curious or interested in sexual experimentation, and um, now I get to do it and get paid. Yeah. You know, and have lots of different kinds of experiences with other humans and meet people and, you know... Uh, I mean, you kind of have to be a people person to be successful in sex work. There's also just examples of places where people are deemed um, unfit or not fit enough within capitalism where sex work is a good option for them, like folks who have 
limited mobility, who can totally. do webcam work, things like that. Like, totally. those are ways in which, right? Like, capitalism tells you, like, if you can't stand on your fucking feet for eight hours, then you're worthless somehow. I mean, I can't stand on my feet for eight hours without getting real irritable. So, um, I have a friend, can only imagine. I have a friend who um, is diagnosed with Tourette's, and it makes it actually quite difficult for him to... Um, get and maintain work and so sex work actually is an environment in which he is able to either like redirect his tics or um or his tics just like don't matter yeah um yeah yeah i mean also perhaps as a as a as a final point like um uh i think that it's actually quite interesting how many like you were talking about like many different kinds of bodies you know I, I think that in sex work there are more opportunities to be validated for a lot of different kinds of sexy bodies and identities than there are in like mainstream culture mainstream society um even conventional dating and interaction with you know like places where we talk about like what is and is not attractive like online dating or dating culture or fucking the you know institution of marriage or or whatever you know I, i think that like people of size trans people um you know you know people who just don't i don't know there's there's lots of different uh there's somebody who is interested in hiring all different kinds of people. Not to say that people should look to like their clients for their self-esteem or their validation, but I think that it can actually be kind of amazing to see. I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, actual human desire is much more varied than conventional ideas of beauty and sexiness and attractiveness um, would have you believe um, because it's much easier to be reductive when you want to sell things, which is what all of that ideology is about. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so in in sex work, I think that it there's a broader opportunity to see all kinds of different things that people actually are interested in, and that the truth of that is sort of laid bare. Yeah, I. Well, you have a pink streak in your hair, and I, I used to have a pink streak in my hair, and I was bartending at the time uh, at a sort of schmancy place, and I got it and didn't even think about, <laughs> I didn't even think of, that it would have any impact mm. on my, I just was like, oh, I'm just going to, I dye my hair all kinds of different colors, I'll just dye it pink. And then, like, immediately the first day I came in, the manager was like, no, Wow. Like, fix your hair. Not going to work. And I hadn't really considered my body as a commodity within bartending before. Like, I didn't work at a bar where I had to really wear anything sexy. It was a pretty, like, formulaic outfit. It was, like, a black top and a black pair of pants. It was, I didn't really sure. think, like, the way I looked had any impact on my job. Wait, you mean that um, bodies are policed in all forms of labor, not just sex work? Is that what you're... Is that, that is that is kind of what I'm getting at. Interesting. It was, I mean, and of course, like, I mean, I had issues with, like, facial piercings and stuff like that at jobs like that. That's definitely something that comes up as well. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was it was something along the lines of, 
I've definitely had a lot of friends who have also worked in bartending and serving yeah. say to me that they, who have also been sex workers, and say to me things like, you know, I, I felt more exploited. I have a friend, um, a close friend who's a sous chef, used to be a sous chef, who uh, now works in um work some policy work and she says to me like I felt more exploited as a sous chef than I ever felt doing sex work and um, it, I it's just definitely an experience that in terms of labor rights and like what's really going on there's just an op- there's an opportunity to look at all kinds of different places where this stuff comes up so yeah no I mean uh, in in many cases um, it, an interaction between a sex work provider and a uh, and a sex work consumer, there is an opportunity or even a sort of like uh, expected um, period of negotiation um, uh, of boundaries and desires, and uh, it would be awesome if that actually happened more in the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, but also. Uh, because that structure is there, um, people have more of a are, are more expected to put their um, to sort of consensually uh, agree, like two humans consensually agreeing on what the power exchange is going to be and um, uh, and what it's going to look like, and that can be really refreshing, even if like. For example, like with a BDSM provider, if that power exchange literally looks like the client like dominating uh, the uh, the provider who is being you know uh, sexually submissive or uh, in some sort of like uh, you know DS or like uh, sadomasochistic way uh, being submissive, you know, like literally crawling around on the floor um, or being spanked or something. <laughs> Um, uh, literally crawling around on the floor, being spanked or being called a slut or whatever, um, in a scene that is explicitly negotiated, um, feel, I think for many people feels a lot more, uh, consensual and satisfying than, you know, being, uh, you know, power tripped. Uh, by customers in retail yeah. or by customers in, boss. or by your shitty or by your like micromanaging shitty boss yeah yeah, yeah. so that's cool. a whole another discussion that certainly is and we have been talking for um, an hour and 40 minutes <laughs> and speaking of work I have to go to work and uh, where can people find out more about Persist now that they know what an awesome organization it is. Cool. So we're on Twitter under Persist Health and Facebook under Persist Health Project. And the website is PersistHealthProject.org. Can you spell that? Sure. Uh, P-E-R-S-I-S-T. Cool. HealthProject.org. Fantastic. Um, well, it's an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank and you so much. I love you. I love you too. Yay. <laughs> Like I mentioned last episode, our wonderful sponsors, Smitten Kitten, are one of the most sex worker-friendly organizations out there. So whether you're on or off the clock, smittenkittenonline.com is the place to visit for all of your sex toy, book, 
porno and safer sex supplies. Thanks for downloading or streaming episode 11. You can listen to every episode of Wire People Into That for free on our fancy website, wirepeopleintothat.com. And even if you're not into squirting or high heels or prostate pleasure, I promise you'll still be stimulated and entertained by every episode. You can also subscribe on iTunes, and if you can just take a a few seconds to rate us on iTunes by clicking the little star or writing a review so that more people can share in the wire people into that love, it really helps make this podcast last. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on at Into That Podcast, and you can follow me at at Tina Horn's ass. I guess it's redundant to say at twice. I don't really understand Twitter. I hope you do. Next month, my guest is Nayland talking about chastity. Why are people into chastity? And he was the first guest ever to engage in the episode subject while we talked about it. Intrigued? Well, you'll just have to wait till next month to find out what in the hell I'm talking about. So see you then. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 